0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, guys. Wherever you are in the world, you are tuning into The O Show, and I am your host, Oren McCurry. The O Show is a no-nonsense podcast where I aim to bring you the best advice on training, mindset, and nutrition to supercharge your efforts in the gym, the kitchen, and most importantly, in your head. Let's get to it. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The O Show. And today we have on a Perth resident, Jackson Pios, who is a PhD researcher studying a lot of really cool stuff around intermittent dieting strategies at UWA. Jackson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, dude.
0: Uh, It's something that it's really exciting seeing somebody from Perth doing this stuff and getting the recognition that you are on a global scale and the names that you sort of liaise with on a regular basis, like Leon Norton and Eric Helms and people like that. And it's really, really cool seeing somebody who's a local guy who's putting out such quality content that it's, it's getting noticed, mate. So that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast. Um, obviously, uh, we've known each other in, in circles for a, for a while, but it's good to have a chat. And we'll, make, we'll start with some sort of silly stuff before we get into the serious stuff. So um, what's your favorite color? Black. Black. Nice. Black <laughs> uh, like, better, my, like my soul. No. Black like your soul. <laughs> what about cats or dogs? What do you prefer?
1: Dogs. 100%. Uh,
0: who's your favourite anime character? I know you're a big anime fan. Naruto. And what about Marvel? Who's the best Marvel character?
1: In the comics, it would be Hulk, but I absolutely detest the Hulk in the cinematic universe.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. So who's your favorite in the cinematic universe then?
1: Uh, Black Panther.
0: Oh, yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Not, not a common choice from a lot of people, so that's, that's quite interesting, mate. Mm-hmm. I'll have to include that question in future podcasts now. <laughs> so. um, right, final one, what's your stripper name? Your, your first pet, if you've ever had a pet, plus the first street you lived on is your stripper name.
1: That would be bronte parmata that's, <laughs> that's just Paramatta. not sexy that's just not sexy at all
0: i mean it depends some people might find that sexy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's killer so that's broke the ice a little bit people have got to know your personality a little bit of that so uh and they also know your stripper now if you ever decide to get up on the pole so that's that's yeah. good so
1: if, the, if the phd falls through you never know
0: that's it me you never know exactly um so mate let's talk about your journey um like What made you get into fitness in the first place? I know you do a bit of coaching as well, plus the research side. Um, How did you get into that and why is research such a big passion for you?
1: Yeah, so before I got into any of the studies, I just loved sport. Um, I was playing sport my whole life. I um, played football from a very early age, playing up to waffle level, which... um, is our state league below AFL? Um, so playing semi-professionally um, with football up until I was uh, twenty-one. Um, during that time, I was also a competitive roller for the school, um, and I went to a private school. So, uh, rolling is uh, is almost as important as how how you how well you are in your exams uh, to some degree. Into <laughs> in regards to how well it's sort of respected um at the school. Uh, so rowing was insane. Um, and I was I was captain of boats of the rowing squad um in year 12 and I led our first state um to uh the head of the head of the river. Um and I had a little go um with some of the state rowing um post school as well. Um so I've I've been involved in sport um quite heavily and in the the last sort of my early adult years sort of maybe 17 to sort of 21, while I was competing in sport, I started lifting weights, not with the intention to get big, but just to sort of complement or to improve my my strength and endurance in um, either football or or rowing. Um, And sort of after the first couple of years, I, I responded quite well and I wasn't doing anything sort of certainly wasn't bodybuilding style training. Um, and it was certainly far from optimal in terms of maximizing the, the muscle growth response. Um, but I still responded quite well um, and put on um, a pretty good amount of muscle um, fairly quickly. And I liked what that looked like. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of uh, fell in love to some degree with, with lifting weights as well um, while I was playing sports. And then I, um, while I was playing waffle, um, it's very intense training regime. Um, training three hours a night, Monday, um, thir- Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, with full day Saturday games. Once you're there for the Colts reserves, plus um, then the league play, and then you have presentations afterwards. Plus a Sunday recovery morning. It's almost like a, a full part time job, and you're only really getting paid two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, a game for, for what feels like a part-time job. It was a massive time investment. Um, and I sort of got to the point when I was around 21 that I knew I wasn't going to play AFL. Um, and that's when I sort of said, okay, well, playing waffle is probably not too worth it in, in terms of the cost for the benefits. So I decided to just um, push with just lifting weights um, and see how I would go with that. Um, I competed in natural bodybuilding, um, won my first show, And then a year and a half later, continued lifting weights and and competed in the IFBB for a couple of seasons, Um, a couple of second places in the state shows, um, a fourth place at nationals. So doing okay, not great. Um, uh, And sort of during all that time, while I was sort of trying to get as big and strong as I possibly could, I sort of just found myself gravitating to a lot of reading uh, in terms of how can I make this. Um, process the most efficient as I possibly can and and, the the answer is by following evidence-based practices so um, before I was even in university I was already sort of looking at the science and and trying testing different scientific concepts for how can I get some some small edges on my nutrition um, or my weight training and things like that so um, I had a love with getting bigger, faster, and stronger, and the scientific method or or process to achieve that. Um, So I started my university studies at at UWA with an undergrad degree. I double majored in sports science um, and exercise and health. did quite well in those um, while I was sort of training away in the bodybuilding. Um, I got offered a position to to complete my honours degree, which specialised in exercise physiology, and that's sort of just a one-year introduction to research degree um and that during that year was when i sort of decided that i was really going to get stuck into the nutrition side of things and that i i felt that i could have a career in research um and be one of these people instead of just sort of reading the science and and sort of um, interpreting it to benefit um, your own sort of performance and, and progress. I instead wanted to be someone that could put out that sort of information and, and sort of help athletes to be bigger, faster, and stronger. Um, so I did. I did well in my honors degree. Um, offered a scholarship position um, to complete my PhD, um, and I was totally set um, on uh, specialising in nutrition, which was a tough gig because. Um, in Perth, we just don't have much nutrition science um, going on, specifically nutrition science for athletes. Um, it's quite easy to do nutrition science for obesity and, and um, treating diabetes and things like that because the funding is quite easy to get. Uh, but running studies on athletes um, just doesn't really happen that much because uh, there's no one to pay for the studies, in essence. And then people see, seem to have this misconception that like studies, are, you can just come up with a study and then run them out of the university. But um, every DEXA scan, every blood test, every resting metabolic rate test costs money and somebody's going to pay for it. And I'm not going to pay for it um, because it's thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, And the university, uh, they pay a little bit, but then they certainly don't pay enough to to sort of run well-controlled studies. Um, And that means you're sort of left to find external funding. Um, So it was tough um, in the beginning uh, because I sort of had these, Uh, wild plans with all these different studies that I I wanted to carry out, um, but not really any money um, to do it. Um, But I was lucky to get some support from um, Renaissance Periodization over in the States uh, with Mike Isratel, Sports Nutrition Australia, um, JPS Health and Fitness. Uh, They sort of came um, on board, um, provided some support and some funding um, and that's, what's um, allowed me to sort of run some of these studies which I think can really uh, benefit the um, health and fitness industry and athletes as a whole. So that's pretty much where I am today.
0: Yeah man, great introduction and uh, very, very background and that gives everyone a lot of detail into exactly what you're doing now in terms of the the university stuff and what actually goes into a study and generating the funding and, that, and that's something that a lot of people won't actually realize so that's 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 key for people mate now a lot of the research you do ties into body composition goals in like physique competitors and using different intermittent dieting strategies so for the, the person who doesn't know the difference can you just explain what the difference is between a refeed and a diet break
1: Yeah, so I've got to step back. So um, the traditional method of dieting is what we call continuous energy restriction. And that's just basically you're in a calorie deficit or an energy deficit every day for the duration of the weight loss phase. And that's typically the the standard approach. Now we have this uh, newer approach called intermittent dieting. And intermittent dieting includes things um, like refeeds and diet breaks. And intermittent dieting as a definition uh, is a cyclical nature or an alternating between periods of calorie restriction and periods of energy balance. Now, energy balance means you're eating at least enough to maintain your body weight, so you're not in a deficit um, anymore. Now, we can achieve energy balance by either doing a refeed or a diet break. Now, the difference between the two is generally d- the duration and frequency. So, re are usually anywhere between one to three days long. And they'll usually happen every one to two weeks. Um, whereas in contrast, diet breaks, they're a little bit longer, um, usually sort of once two weeks long. And, and they'll happen um, anywhere between every sort of two to eight weeks. So it's basically just the duration um, and the frequency of them. Uh, the calorie intakes usually relatively uh, similar between the two.
0: Okay, cool, cool. And that's, uh, that's quite interesting because a lot of people who are listening will just know that one style of diet in terms of the linear diet and where over time calories get dropped and activity goes up. And that's the only, only thing they've ever known or tried. So um, just by doing this, hopefully we're introducing people to that intermittent diet and strategy, whether they are a gen pop person or a coach who employs either. So uh, I think it's super interesting topic, mate, um so diet breaks are quite new to the industry um versus refeeds and refeeds has probably been studied a little bit more than like a full week or two diet and break like you're suggesting in terms of the the science that exists with refeeds what what's the science currently saying is effective with a refeed versus unaffected and is it a physiological versus a psychological benefit that we really get from a refeed?
1: So um, you say there's been a lot of... There's been more research on refeeds. There really hasn't. Um, And I think this is a major misconception in the fitness industry. And the misconception is that refeeds are an evidence-based practice. They're just not. They are not. Up until three months ago, we'd never, ever had a refeed study completed. And it's just... People like to say, oh, refeeds are good for increasing metabolic rate and, and sort of increasing leptin levels, and this is going to make you sort of feel more satiated and, and better able to manage hunger, but we just don't have the data, um, and it's, it, it bothers me a lot because people talk like refeeds are the holy grail secret to, to optimal weight loss, but we just haven't studied it yet, um, and now the study that I referred to that happened three m- months ago um, that used a model of dieting that would be most similar to what sort of I'd say would be used by bodybuilders and people in, in this industry, and that was diet for five days, and then Saturday and Sunday have your refeed. We you increase your calories to maintenance with via increasing carbohydrate intake, and you just cycle that um, for the, for the weight loss phase. And they compared that to just dieting straight all week, um, and each group went for seven weeks long. Now. The, the group that had the refeeds, they didn't better maintain their resting metabolic rate and they didn't better maintain fat-free mass. They did slightly maintain better dry fat-free mass, um, but I have issues with the timing of the measurement because they, they measured the refeed group two days post their refeed. Now... Um, obviously some glycogen retention and restoration is going to happen as a result of the refeed. And what I'm thinking is this better dry fat free mass retention that they're talking about is just a result of the acute sort of storage of glycogen that's happening from the, the high carbohydrate refeed. I don't think it's actually a result of more muscle maintenance, which is what the athletes actually care about. Um, So that that's really the only study that we have that's looked at refeeds in a training population and, and, people might be quite surprised with that because they see everyone talking about how great refeeds are. Um, but we, re- we really just don't know. And like that anecdotal support is pretty good. Um, but in terms of controlled scientific studies, um, we just don't have them. Um, now, diet breaks, uh, I, I would agree that, that so, well, I, I would actually say they've been studied to the same degree as refeeds in a way. I don't think there's more evidence for refeeds or more evidence for diet breaks either way. Um, we had a study published, um, a couple of years back, which used two week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting. Um, and they compared that to a group who just dieted straight and the the weight loss phase was 16 weeks long. And what they did see was that doing these two week diet breaks. Um, the, the diet break group lost more fat. They maintained their resting metabolic rate to a higher level and they didn't regain as much weight and fat post diet so uh, from the research that we do have if we're going to say that one one or the other is better um, there's more evidence suggesting the benefits of diet breaks as opposed to the benefits of refeeds Um, and i guess that's logical on face value because you can think okay maybe 48 hours in maintenance isn't enough to cause like significant restoration in some of these hormonal markers and, and some of these things that influence uh, metabolic rate and things like that. Whereas if we take them to sort of seven to 14 days in energy balance, maybe that's enough of a signal to sort of um, send a message to the body like, okay, energy availability isn't so low. We can start sort of normalizing some of these things that have been basically bashed um, during, during the deficit period. Um, Now um, that study that used the two week diet breaks, that was far from ideal macronutrient splits. And it was in overweight obese people who weren't training. So it's fairly limited what we can make from that study, which is why I wanted to basically tweak that study, put it in a resistance trained athlete population um, and instead of doing two week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting, because that doubles the length of the weight loss intervention, it makes yeah. it super, super fucking long. Um, so instead of that, I was going to, I decided to diet them for three weeks straight and then have a one week diet break. Um, okay, yeah. And, and to see if we could see um, the same sort of benefits in like better maintenance of metabolic rate um, uh, better maintenance, or better fat loss, or, or better maintenance of fat-free mass, or anything like that. Now, I am analysing that data at the moment, um, and the, the 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 general trends that I'm looking at so far are quite surprising, and and it's probably the the findings are probably don't sit in line with what most people in the industry think is is going to happen. Um, for example, um, it doesn't seem like the diet breaks are preventing sort of metabolic downregulation to any great degree. Um, It doesn't seem like they're um, allowing that the intermittent diet group to maintain a better sort of hormonal position. Um, It doesn't look like it's allowing them to better maintain um, their fat free mass. Um, So all those things that people sort of uh, promote with regards to refeeds and diet breaks don't really seem to hold up just yet. Um, But that's absolutely not to say that I don't think diet breaks or refeeds have any value, um, because what I have seen in my study is that um, when we look at hunger scores and appetite scores, um, hunger just seems to be a whole lot lower in the in the diet break group compared to the continuous dieting group, um, and I complement that with the observation that that double the amount of people who dropped out. Um, from the diet break group dropped out from, um, the continuous group. So we had something like, um, four, four people drop out from the, from the diet break group, but we had like nine, um, drop out from, from the continuous dieting group, which makes me think that, Hey, maybe diet breaks are doing something to allow, um, easier hunger management or just to suppress some of the appetite and things like that. And that's allowing the the person to stick to the program a little bit easier. Whereas we compare that to to the guys in the continuous group who aren't getting any diet breaks. It looks like hunger just spirals straight up and that that might make the the program just um, super difficult for them to stick to. And then they say, fuck, this is too hard. I'm out um, sort of thing. Um, Now that's a big finding um, because even if diet breaks don't enhance fat loss or they don't enhance metabolic rate or they don't release leptin or anything like that. Um, it doesn't really matter if the person can't sort of stick to the program. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so if diet breaks are allowing an easier uh, method of, of weight and fat loss, that has huge practical application um, because it, the, the most perfect um, Dietary protocol is useless if no one can follow it. Um, So the the finding that we might have a dietary approach that's easier to stick to than the standard traditional approach um, has a lot of value for sort of improving um, the ease to which people can can lose the weight um, and lose the fat. Um, Now I have seen some other kind of cool um, trends and findings. Um, It looks like irritability is a lot lower in the diet break group. Now, that could be a result of the hunger. Um, maybe because the continuous group, their hunger was so high all the time, that's caused them to sort of um, just be shitty more of the time, whereas it seems like the intermittent group, um, the irritability is a lot lower, their alertness was scored higher, um, and their hunger is lower. So they, they could sort of be interconnected and intertwined, but it does look sort of overall that there's a more positive psychological state in the diet break group um, which i think has a lot of value um, for coaches like us um, trying to use these um, things in practice i also noticed that um, diet breaks if you um, we measured performance immediately pre and immediately post diet break um, and it looks like muscle endurance Increases quite notably as a result of the diet break. It doesn't last too long. It's only a sort of a short term increase, but that gives me the idea that um, there could be some merit for athletes to synchronize their diet breaks with their highest volume training sessions where they might sort of need that little bit of extra endurance to push harder for longer, sort of let's say in their last week before a deload or something like that. Or if you want to say outside the weights room, let's say we've got um, like a power. that's in the weight through, but like a sprinter, um, powerlifters as well, they they often have testing weeks sort of uh, happen every, every few months um, where they'll just go pretty close to max to see how they're, how they're actually tracking. Um, Now diet break could be a great time to sort of synchronize with those testing weeks to give you the ability to sort of perform slightly more optimally um, while not sort of impairing um, the fat or the weight loss. So, yeah the findings are a little bit upside down. Um, I think definitely they 're going to surprise a lot of people um, when this stuff gets published um, and it 's probably going to change the pr- thought process for a lot of people um, but it doesn 't mean uh, that, th- that these intermittent dieting strategies have no value um, it 's just um, the value that I think some people associated with them like the the hormonal benefits and the and the metabolic rate benefits they don 't seem to be um, as evidence as evident as we as we originally thought.
0: Yeah, that's fair, man. Yeah. And that's a good that's a good sum of me. You pretty much like answered every question I had about what you know, what you find there. But I think as a coach mate, that's very beneficial because whether it's Gen pop or comp prep clients or athletes, like so anything we can do to make somebody more compliant and like more like more able to sustain their efforts in dieting then it's massively beneficial. So even if it's not like in terms of the hormonal benefits and increased fat loss, just the fact that, you know, double the amount of people dropped out of a linear diet shows that this is something that probably coaches and even if somebody's coaching themselves should implement moving forward.
1: Big time dude, big time. I agree.
0: And in terms of, I know obviously you do a lot of coaching yourself and you had athletes at the last IFBB. I think that was Arnold. Yeah, Arnold's. I can't even remember where we're sitting at in the year now. Um, was it Arnold's or was it, yeah, did you have Rachel in the Arnold's this year or was that season B last year?
1: Uh, that would have been season B last year. Okay. I had Jordan in Arnold's um, this year. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. So with competitors like that, what sort of structure? I know you mentioned that some of the studies do like a two week, two week on, two week off that with diet breaks. If you were putting a diet break strategy in with a competitor like that, would you do the three in one, like what you're doing currently in your research or would you tweak it a bit? Or would you do, would you just throw them in depending on the, the feedback you're getting on a check-in?
1: Mm. Um, it sort of depends a little bit. So, um, if the clients come to you with a bunch of time before the show, like they come to you like 25 weeks out or something like that, um, and you've got plenty of time up your sleeve, then that's a good opportunity to be using these diet breaks. Now, um, although, they, although they're although they probably not gonna in- enhance the fat loss or they're not gonna sort of allow you to maintain a higher metabolic rate or, or anything like that, um, as we said, it might just make um, the overall program a little bit easier to stick to might allow them to maintain a more positive mood state um, and just uh, sort of manage that hunger a little bit better. So if you've got the time up your sleeve, I think that they do have value um, with Jordan's recent prep and he got uh, that's Jordan Madashi. Um, yeah. If anyone wants to look at how shredded he got,
0: yeah, uh, I was it.
1: we, we did, use one week diet breaks after every three weeks of dieting. Um, But we only really did that for up until about nine weeks out. We did that. So um, we went with that protocol and it was like a a pre-planned protocol. And I think the pre-planned protocol sometimes helps because when the athlete knows when the diet breaks coming, when they start getting to sort of week two of that deficit or maybe early in week three of that deficit, and things start sucking a little bit and that energy is taking a hit and, and the hunger is sort of coming up a bit, they can sort of hang on because they know that sort of, ha- I've just got to fucking knuckle down for seven days and then yeah. this perhaps is going to come back in and I'll, get, I'll get, I'll recharge the batteries a little bit. Um, whereas if you don't really tell them when the, the diet breaks are coming, I feel like it might lose some of the adherence value because yeah. all of a sudden you, you're, you're 20 weeks out with a the client. They don't know when, or when or if they're having a diet break and um, when things get sucky, they, they don't have that short-term sort of goal that they can work, work to it. It's going to get super overwhelming because they're like, they're thinking, holy fuck, 18 more weeks of this shit. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas if they only have to look a maximum of like 21 days ahead, um, that can be a lot easier to manage and, and mentally process. Um, so I, I, I tend to, to prefer to go with um, the like more sort of um, preemptive um, yeah, okay. arrangement of diet breaks just so they know that they're coming. And then I think it sort of facilitates that, that adherence during the dieting periods, but inside nine weeks out, um, I, I play it a bit more conservative because um, one week diet breaks, are they're quite a long time um, yeah. and fat loss isn't happening in those times. They're basically just sort of, um, chuck the car into neutral and coast along um, for a little bit. You're not really improving. Like, yes, like food comes up, improve the psyche, might have some better training, but it's not really, you're not really um, getting closer to your goal um, yeah. during that diet break week. So instead of um, having those full week-long diet breaks, I, I just switched to the the two and single day refeeds um, from like when we're in close proximity um, to the show. And, and that's not because I think that refeeds are going to sort of, Spike his metabolism, or, or um, replenish his hormone profile, or anything like that. Um, it's just purely a, a, a psychological thing where they, they know I've just got I've only got to dig for six days and then I get that little top up. Um, yeah, yeah. As opposed to I got nine weeks before the show. Fuck, I already feel shit and like I'm so depleted. There's no way I'm going to be able to do sort of nine nine more weeks of this shit. But if I only have to ever look six days ahead or five days ahead, it just becomes a whole lot more manageable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair. And that's, that's good. Good way. like you said, implement both and have the the diet breaks a bit further out when you maybe need to have more of a a bang for your buck right at the start and then let them, you know, like you said, put the car in neutral for a bit and just chill for those weeks. It increases adherence to the plan. And then whenever it gets proper crunch time and you've got to make sure you're maximizing every week, then you're, you're being a bit more strict with it and using just like those sort of those refeed days on on the weekends if, if needed. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's awesome. That's a lot into your, like your research and how you people can implement this stuff. The one other topic that I wanted to talk to you about is supplements because you've been quite outspoken in the past about certain supplements and certain things being, um, illogical or not researched. But yeah, yeah, the, 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 the but supplement
1: company that won't be named that just got fined $400,000. Yeah, 000. yeah, that, that company. We won't get into that. Yeah. No,
0: but people can obviously follow you. I'll put all the links in the, in the show notes. But if they want to find out, they can easily scroll back and find it. Now, you obviously do believe in some supplements because you're um, one of the advisors for bulk nutrients, isn't that right? Yep. Um, so you do believe in some supplements and I know a lot of people listening to this whether they are coaches or you know Gem pop or competitors People like to take supplements. So let's dispel some myths on what's What's good and what's bad or even if you just want to go into what's actually Research backed in terms of buying for their buck if they do want to you know, go to supplement mart or massive joes and buy some supplements
1: Yeah, well if we wanted to have, if we wanted to just talk about all the things that are bad we could have a three hour podcast so we'll stick to the thing we'll stick to the things that, that that work and and to be honest it's quite a short list um, yeah. honestly um, now for ninety nine percent of the people that I work with creatine monohydrate will be a staple that is yeah. the most uh, scientifically backed supplement out there um, by far um, it will um, notably improve your ability to uh, execute repeated high-intensity efforts. So, that doesn't matter if you're in the weights room or um, on the football field doing sprints or um, a sprinter. It it, it doesn't matter. If if you're doing any form of high-intensity bursts, then you're going to be relying on the phosphocreatine energy system Mm -hmm. um, and you can increase the basically the fuel depot of of that uh, fuel reserve by supplementing with creatine. Basically, it it allows you uh, more circulating creatine to bind with the phosphate molecules to make this little packet of energy um, that can Quickly be hydrolyzed and broken apart to allow you to sort of pump out these high-intensity efforts. Now, the, when you look at studies, this this can um, lead to extra reps performed in the gym, um, extra strength, um, faster repeat sprint efforts, um, faster uh, cycling time trials, uh, Wingate tests, all sorts of things. Now, um, it's very notable performance improvements. Now, um, for the for the the bros anything that's going to improve your performance in that way is by definition going to improve your adaptations and, and and therefore sort of your muscle, your muscle size as well. Um, so yeah, creatine hugely beneficial and, um, you'd have a tough case, um, to justify why you wouldn't be using uh, creatine if you're a high performing athlete, I think. Um, the next one, um, I guess we'll call it protein supplements. Um, Weigh and casein are pretty, um, uh, I, I often prescribe them. Um, mostly for like when you're working with, this is more so for sports athletes. Like the bodybuilders, they usually have their protein intakes down pat. Um, they're, they're consuming what, like five, six, seven protein feedings per day. Like the protein supplements just aren't that important for those guys. They, they're already getting ample um, protein intake putting supplements on top of that is probably not going to give them much. But for some of the other athletes that I work with, like boxers, um, cyclists, uh, MMA fighters, um, they have like three meals a day, you know what I mean? And um, often they're undershooting their protein um, in a big way. They're not eating like bodybuilders. Um, so for guys like that, um, chucking in a whey shake sort of in the morning or, or post-training or something like that, that can that can increase their their protein intake by anywhere between sort of 25 to 40%, which can take them all of a sudden from a suboptimal protein intake to an optimal protein intake. And once that happens, all of a sudden they just notice they're recovering better and they they sort of getting more progress in the gym and and sort of more muscle gain progress and things like that. So um, for guys who are undershooting their protein, which is very, very common in sports athletes, adding uh, whey protein shakes is really good for them. casein is is really good i think there's i think it's probably still undervalued even in the bodybuilding community um it seemed like a few years ago everyone was like fuck yeah casein and cottage cheese before bed but it seems like there's been like a shift away and people don't think it's so important but there's been a, a, a solid couple of studies recently which which have even surprised me and they've, they've shown like Um, notable benefits to consuming like a slow digesting pre-bed protein and the benefits are being caused by I think um, basically because these are slow releasing proteins um, it's allowing you to maintain a level of amino acidemia so high levels of amino acids in the blood for a longer period of time and it's just going to prevent you from remaining in a, in a state of very low blood amino acids for a long period of time, like you're sleeping. Um, and I just think that potentially, if you're not having a pre-bed protein and, and maybe even not a, a, a slow, slow digesting pre-bed protein, I think there's more potential for sort of somewhere mid-sleep. Um, there's, you've just got really low levels of amino acids sitting in the blood, and that's when you can sort of slip into negative protein balance um, or catabolism for, for a short period of time. Um, and I just think uh, this, is not, this is not the holy grail, and it's not going to make you jacked in, in three months or anything like that. But I think it might be able to add a, a, a 1% to 5% edge. Um, and I just think those slow digesting proteins like casein can just allow you to sort of maintain a positive protein balance state during sleep. Without allowing those sort of blood amino acids to dip to a level that might risk sort of catabolism. Um, So yeah, that's sort of my take on on protein supplements. Um, But yeah, the big ones protein supplements just aren't really needed if you're already getting sort of two grams of protein uh, per kilo of body weight from whole food sources. Um, But for for many many athletes, um, they're not they're not getting that. Um, For my endurance guys, um, I'll recommend beta alanine. that is basically a buffering agent so it increases levels of muscle carnosine and carnosine is the buffer so when we do high fatiguing training we release hydrogen ions ions which sort of separate from the lactic acid that's um, released and what carnosine does is it goes and buffers those hydrogen ions um, which basically reduces our fatigue and allows us to push a little bit harder for longer before that fatigue really kicks in our performance dips Um, So if you're performing efforts sort of from one to four minutes of really high intensity, that seems like what um, better better alanine can really um, benefit those sort of activities. Um, Probably not going to help bodybuilders too much unless you're training in like the 25 rep range plus. Um, I have seen a couple of studies with those really high rep ranges where better alanine was able to allow them to... um, basically add on a couple of extra reps than they would otherwise um, because when you're doing really high reps it's not sort of this, your muscle strength that sort of kicks out to, that stops the set it's those it's that sort of over accumulation of hydrogen ions that, that are so fatiguing and that really burning sensation that that sort of causes the, the set to end so um, yeah better alanine really good for endurance athletes um, at least sort of one to four minute um, sort of activities that, that have that really high burning sensation. If, if you're doing an activity and you get really high burn, beta alanine is probably going to help you. Um, uh, there's a big misconception that the beta alanine is like a pre-workout drink. Um, it's just not. It needs to be loaded chronically. So it needs to be taken seven days straight before it really actually does anything. Um, so that tingling sensation that you get in your face, that does not mean that the beta alanine is working. Um, which is, I know it's so stupid because it's always in pre-workout supplements, and yeah. people like have their, have their fucking scoop of pre-workout, and they're like, oh, here comes the tingles, we're ready, to roll now. Like that's not beta alanine doing its thing. Um, so. Our needs to be loaded um, chronically and daily um, leading up to sort of when you want to perform. Otherwise it's just not going to give you those um, endurance benefits. So don't take it intermittently. Don't sort of take it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's, it's not going to do anything for you. Um, then the only other real one outside of that would be uh, caffeine. Um, I, I tend to prescribe caffeine doses that are a little higher than what most people um, would probably recommend in the fitness industry. And, and that's just based on my own research. Um, there's been really solid recent studies um, that have shown upwards, up to nine milligrams of caffeine per kilo of body weight, which is a massive amount, um, still improves performance to a greater degree than six milligrams per kilo of body weight, which is, which is still a really high dose. Um, There's a lot of misconception about sort of adrenal fatigue and caffeine. Adrenal fatigue is complete bullshit. It doesn't exist. It's just a theory. Um, It's been debunked heavily, Um, but that's not to say everyone should start slamming nine milligrams of of caffeine, um, nine milligrams of per kilo of caffeine every day. Um, You still need to monitor monitor your tolerance, start low, see how you go. um, And then, sort of gravitate your way up if you find that you're sort of tolerating it quite well. And I'm, I will say that for the guys who, that I sort of prescribe those higher doses for, it's for, it's for high level athletes. It's, it's for, for boxers going to have like a really intense sparring session, like a competitive spa or um, uh, a sprint track athlete. Um, sometimes uh, I'll use it for bodybuilders. Um, if they've like usually, the, the doses might ramp up in that, in their high volume um, sort of testing weeks, pre-deload and things like that. But yeah, you wouldn't want to be over, um, you wouldn't want to be smashing nine milligrams um, per kilo of caffeine just for every workout because yeah. you want to like build your biceps up a little bit <laughs> better look good in your bathers or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say for most people, three to six milligrams um, per kilo of body weight um, of caffeine is a good place to be. Um, start low monitor tolerance and and move upwards and then for competitive events um six to nine um is where uh, i'll have most of my guys sitting um but yeah outside of that i just really don't think anything else works um and i don't think anything else is worth the time or money or financial investment um yeah
0: yeah and that's the thing as well the financial investment you're talking about like people are paying you know maybe up to 100 bucks for you know a tub of pre-workout that like you said like the beta alanine and all this stuff that's put in to make it feel like it's doing something you've got a a decent level of caffeine a big head of beta alanine to make you feel like oh shit this stuff's really kicked in but in reality it's probably not having that big of an impact on performance for the average gym goer or bodybuilder who's using it and the thing is, as well, most people here are doing those pre-workouts and stuff will probably be taking them at 30, 6 p.m., and it's probably affecting their sleep. And in reality, the sleep would be better than buying a tub of pre workout, especially based He's on what you're saying as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so that's, that's a pretty cool – I mean, I know you've got a busy day, so that's a pretty cool little um, episode that we've got here. It's a lot into the diet stuff. It's all research-based, obviously, um, which you being such a high-level researcher. And I think it gives everyone a little bit of an idea on, you know, how to implement diet breaks or refeeds depending on where they're at, and you know what supplements to sort of aim their, their budget towards if they're gonna if they're into supplements and they like the the like that whole buying the supplements, maybe that makes them stay on track if they're taking certain supplements. So at least it's uh, from your research-based opinion what's actually gonna provide some bang for their buck. So. Jackson, thank you for that, mate. It's been an awesome episode. Um, It's going to be up on YouTube, uh, Apple, and Spotify in the next couple of days. Um, I'll make sure to tag you in that. But, mate, um, just give us a a recap. I know you've got some seminars coming up, and if you can throw out your Instagram handle for people to follow.
1: Yeah, so I've got uh, for the Perth Onions um, presenting a seminar um, at Tough Team. Um, Tickets can be bought through. their website or IG, um, so that's going to be mid June, um, and I'm, it's going to be a, a pretty decent half day seminar. And I'm just going to talk about um, some of the undiscussed uh, fat loss strategies. That'll be sort of the, the first half, and and I'll discuss in more depth some of my research findings with regards to diet breaks and refeeds and whatnot. And then the second half of the seminar is going to be more so focused on muscle gain. Um, and a lot of the strategies um, that I think are being poorly used by people trying to gain muscle. And a lot of the things I think are just downright stupid uh, that a lot of people do when trying to gain muscle. So yeah, that's mid-June if you want to catch me there. Um, I'm also speaking at the Hypertrophy Summit, um, which is going to be an online event. Um, that's a stacked lineup with like Lane Norton, Mikey's um Jacob Skerpas, Eric Helms. Um, but I think the promo material will be coming out for that pretty soon if you just follow my ig um my instagram is uh at jackson Pios, um and if you want to be a true homie um you could please subscribe to my youtube channel um, which i'm trying to build up at the moment um basically just a lot of stuff on uh food training anime and some education if i feel (laughs) like it (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah it sounds like a good channel mate huh
1: yeah uh, i like watching it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well what i'll do is i'll put the the link in for your channel in the youtube video so anyone who does watch this because we get maybe about 10 to 20 people who watch them on youtube they can then click straight to your channel if they've watched this far and they can uh, subscribe to there hopefully and guys if you're listening on apple or spotify please follow jackson he does put out some really cool stuff i shared one of his studies the other day that he shared and, um, yeah, it's been great having you on, buddy. Thank you for providing the knowledge bombs. And I will hopefully be catching a tough team because I did tell the guys there that I would be coming to that one. So uh, awesome, fingers crossed we can get to that one and we'll, uh, we'll catch up properly then.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, nah, it's been a good chat. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Jackson. Have a good day, mate. Thanks for listening to The O Show. I have been your host, Oren Macari, And if you've enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could share it on your social media or give us a review on iTunes. I can't wait to see you on the next episode to dive deeper into topics and guests that will supercharge your efforts in the gym, the kitchen, and most importantly, in your head. See you soon.